Well, good morning. It is a, a joy to be with you, to, to worship with you, to see, um, to partner with you in, in declaring the gospel. Um, we're part of a, a church family in, in Chicago called Sabka Sahara, the church on Devon. So we bring greetings to you and doing something very similar. We're in a neighborhood called Little India, and we have a church in a storefront, and we're just sharing the love of Jesus with those around us, and so it's beautiful to see a uh, to see a, a, a church body here in Manunk sharing the love of Jesus, and to see God's faithfulness over recent years. And uh, you guys are doing it. You guys are doing it. And so I just want to encourage you to to press on, to to, to keep going. That that Christ is worthy, and that He's with you, and that it's it's so it's so worth it. Um, and I just want to say thank you to, to Pastor Eric and the, the invitation that, that he offered to invite me to, to come and share with you from God's Word. Um, I've just had the pleasure of, of knowing the Johnsons for the past few years, uh, but my wife Anna and her family has, has known him uh, and them for a long time, a long time. Uh, I think he was Anna's youth pastor back in the day, um, was a go-to person for, for questions that she had. Um, available at a moment's notice to, to lead worship for our wedding. And um, yeah, just a, a really sweet, a sweet family um, to me in extension from, from Anna and her family. So, so thank you. It's a, it's a joy, a joy to be here. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'd like to invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis 27. If you have one of the the church Bibles here, it's page 32. Genesis 37 is the beginning of the end. The end of Genesis, that is. The beginning of the end of Genesis. So Genesis is a story of what? God creates, sin enters, and then God is on a mission to restoration. He makes a covenant with Adam saying that he will crush the serpent. He will crush sin. He will conquer it. He makes a covenant with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. And now the focus shifts to Joseph. And as you guys all know, and as Eric has alluded to, this is a messy book. God works through broken people. As he said, God is not rewarding sin, he's redeeming sinners. And, and this story is, is no different in chapter 37. It's, it's a wild story, it's, it's a captivating story. It's filled with dreams, jealousy, favoritism, sibling rivalry, suspense, deception, betrayal, and tragedy. And interestingly, if, if you grew up in the church, this is a pretty familiar story. It's a, it's a popular children's story, as tragic, as tragic as it is. And it's messy. And we'll see that as we progress through the story. But as Genesis does, it provides just a glimmer of hope. Amidst the messiness, there's a glimmer of hope. So, Genesis 37, starting in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. So 
the, the, the narrative is, is shifting. It was Jacob, now it's going down to Jacob's sons, and particularly focusing on one certain son, as we'll see, his favorite son, Joseph. So Joseph, at 17 years of age, he tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. So Joseph comes across as being a tattletale. And if you have brothers or sisters, I'm sure you love when your sibling is a tattletale. But we don't know exactly uh, the motive here with, with Joseph. Perhaps he's a tattletale. Perhaps he's being an obedient son. Perhaps his father wants to know, hey, what's going on? And if the brothers are not doing what they're supposed to, then he is doing right to share with Jacob what is going on. Pressing on to, to verse 3, says, now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons, because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. And he made a long-sleeved robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Now, let me, let me first address it. You guys might hear long-sleeved robe, and you're like, what? That, that, that's not, th this is about Joseph with a, a coat of many colors, where did these sleeves come from? <laughs> now, depending on what translation you have, it, it might have a different reading. And um, just, I'll be a little technical here, but I'm guessing that many of you are, are interested to know, how do we get from long sleeves to many colors? In your footnote, it, it might even mention the other option. Now, in that day, what the common wardrobe was, was a tunic. So it was just one piece of clothing, there's a hole for your head, rope you, you have around the waist, you got a rope, and that was what you wore. Now, so a long-sleeved robe was extra special. You'd have to sew it on, it'd take more time, it'd be more expensive, and it signified that you weren't a working man, because it was hot. You wouldn't want sleeves if you were working. And so by Jacob putting on Joseph a robe with long sleeves, it signifies royalty. It says, this is one who has been set apart. The only other instance in the Old Testament when this word is used is in 2 Samuel verse th chapter 13, and it's talking about royalty. And so the exact Hebrew word is somewhat uncertain, but the essence, the communication that Jacob is portraying is clear, that Joseph is viewed as royalty. Now, where do the colors come in? So, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that is often what we go to as, as a primary source for then in translating into English. And in the Greek Septuagint, it, it clearly says, robe of many colors. And so, for whatever reason, th those translators at that time understood this phrase as being something related to a fancy garment with colors. It, it literally says an, an outer garment of ends 
So you can kind of see the long-sleeved idea. Regardless, whether it was long sleeves, whether it was many colors, this was a special robe. A special robe that led to serious hatred and jealousy for the brothers. Because Jacob was saying that this son, this is my favorite. This son, this is the one who will stand out amongst the rest. And if, if you've been going through Genesis, you see, you've seen this favoritism come up before. You, th- you would think that Jacob would know better. His own parents had parental favoritism. In Genesis 25, J- Isaac, he loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. And what happens? It didn't end well. Serious family disunity it divides, deep hurt, and it doesn't go well. And yet, now here Jacob is doing the exact same thing. The, and, and look, there's a sense where uh, our, our human nature might pull towards certain personalities or pull towards certain people who are similar than us, who, who might share certain interests, um, but, but as parents, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, may favoritism not be a mark in our lives. And I think what's most helpful is just to be aware of it, to be aware of the, of the danger that it can so easily, even unintentionally, creep up into our hearts and recognize that ongoing favoritism divides families and it causes, causes deep hurt. Now maybe you've been on the flip side where you've experienced, um, you've been on the victim end of family favoritism, or maybe you've been ab- abandoned by, by your family, or there really is uh, deep hurt amongst siblings. That's, that's real. And, and I just want to encourage you through the gospel that, that God beautifully adopts us all into his family on one level. We're all sons and daughters of the king. No matter if we're up here, we're leading music, we're with the kids, we're leading sound, we're doing other things, at the foot of the cross, we are all laid at the same level. And to all of us, he puts on a special robe, the Holy Spirit, which signifies that there is an eternal inheritance that awaits us all. There is no tears in the faith of Christ. We are sons and daughters of the king. And so hear that. As the characters in the story give in to sin of favoritism, may it not be so with us. And so obviously, you you can imagine that the brothers aren't exactly huge fans of this special robe. I mean, Joseph was the 11th son why, why, why should he be the favorite? He, he's not even the one out in the field. He's the one giving the reports. And so there's, there's this tension building. It's building and building amongst the brothers and a hatred towards Joseph. And it only gets worse. So now verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. 
He said to them, listen to this dream I had. He's like, this is a good dream. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field, and suddenly my sheep stood up, and your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheep. What a, what a great dream, huh? You're going to bow down to me. They're saying, really? Verse 8, are you, are you really going to reign over us? You're a boy. Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Maybe if you have a dream about your siblings bowing down to you, you might want to keep that one to yourself. <laughs> Joseph doesn't learn his lesson. He has another dream. <laughs> Verse 9, then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Look, I had another dream. I'm sure they're excited to hear it. He said, this time, not just all of you, but the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told this to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of a dream is this that you had? He said, am I and your mother and your brothers really going to bow, come and bow down to you, to bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This was shocking to, to even Jacob. And there's no question what these dreams represent. Uh, our, our, our church just finished up going through the book of Daniel, and there are some dreams in Daniel about statues and visions and beasts and three-headed leopards, and uh, it, it's complicated stuff. This is not. Th this is obvious what is happening here, and Jacob himself recognizes what's going to happen. He says, really? Like, the whole family is going to bow down to you. I, I don't think Jacob would have been surprised with the first dream. He, he recognized that he had declared Joseph as being special, but then, for Joseph to say that the whole family, even his father, would bow down to him is shocking. It's shocking. And his father rebuked him. But you can, you can see that Jacob was not sure. It says that, verse 11, his father kept the matter in mind. He wondered, maybe, maybe there's some truth to this. Jacob had a dream of his own in chapter 28. And despite the surprise, he's thinking, maybe, maybe this will be true. Regardless, regardless of that, what is clear is that the brothers are hateful and jealous towards Joseph. It's compounding. Have you seen it? Like, Joseph, he tattles on them. He gives a bad report. Joseph, he gets the special robe. Joseph is known as being the favored son. Now he has these two dreams saying that they're going to bow down to him. And as I was going through this with, with fresh lenses, I could kind of feel for the brothers, can't you? Like, What? Like, the, the humanness aspect of it. Like, this son is the 11th son, and he's sudden, he's, for some reason, he's the favorite. And he says that, he's gonna, that we're going to all bow down to him. 
And as I was thinking about this, the sin of Jacob has led the brothers into sin. The hatred and jealousy is a result of their father's mistake. Yet, there is never an excuse for sin. There's a danger that our hearts will deceive us into thinking that when there is sin around us, there's an excuse for sin to be in us. When we're driving on the road, someone doesn't drive how we think they should, we feel obligated to lash out at them. When our kids, when the kids don't do what you want, even if it's adamantly disobedient, there's a desire for, for anger towards them. When others are, are being perhaps gossip, gossiping against you, oh, I'm gonna, I'll gossip against them. May it not be so. There's a danger that our hearts will deceive us into giving us the excuse that when sin is around us, it gives us permission for sin within us. But when that happens, when that builds up in our hearts, when there is hatred or jealousy that is building up within us, may we let it go. May we surrender it. Give it to Christ. Because it's not just going to go away on its own. Perhaps, as we'll see in this story, that hatred and jealousy won't stay in the heart. It will come out in a dangerous, devastating way. So may we deal with sin when it creeps up and is exposed in our hearts. So that, that sets the stage for, for where we're going. So there's this major tension. Jacob loves Joseph. The brothers hate Joseph. And now, and now Jacob puts Joseph in a dangerous situation. So now on to verse 12 says that his brothers, Jacob, Joseph's brothers, again, they'd gone to pasture, their father's flocks. But now they're in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. Joseph replies, I'm ready. Then Israel said to him, go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley, and he went to Shechem. We, we can kind of recognize that perhaps what's happening here is what happened at the beginning of Jacob. He's sending Joseph to give a report to see how the brothers are doing. Are they doing what they're supposed to? And Joseph, an obedient son, he says, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm ready. Now, at this point in the narrative... A reader looking at this with, with fresh eyes might say, Jacob, what are you doing? Like, your beloved 17-year-old son, you're sending him out to go to see his brothers who vehemently hate him. You're sending him all alone. And not only that, he's sending them from Hebron to Shechem. So Shechem shows up in chapter 34. That's where the deceitful and murderous actions of the brothers against the indigenous Hivites took place. Like this is enemy territory. 
It forced Jacob and the family to flee. And this is the, where the brothers have gone. Hebron is, is the land of the promise. If Hebron represents home, Shechem represents hostility. And not only that, but this was 60 miles away. Like 60 miles. This 17-year-old boy is going to go on this journey all by himself into a hostile territory with who knows what animals are out there with 10 brothers who hate his guts. And Jacob is going to send them out. Jacob, what are you doing? And Joseph, being faithful to his father, he says, I'm ready. And he goes to Shechem. This is a horror story waiting to happen. But he goes. In verse 15, he gets to Shechem. And a man found him there, wandering in the field, and asked, what are you looking for? It, it, things have not gotten better. Joseph, all alone, out in this field by himself, he doesn't see his brothers. He just sees one man in enemy territory come and say hello. Fortunately, this man did not have poor intentions, and in fact, he was willing to help Joseph. So Joseph says, verse 16, well, I'm, I'm looking for my brothers. Can, can you tell me? where they are pasturing their flocks. I can imagine the uh, kind of difficult feeling in, jo in Joseph's gut. He's taking this long journey, 60 miles to get to Shechem, following his father's lead, and then now they're not even here. And he just so happens to come across a man who can lead him in the right direction. He says, verse 17, they've moved on from here. The man said, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Again, thankfully the man chooses to help Joseph. This whole thing is, is arguably you know, a supernatural re result. Like the brothers were in Shechem for whatever reason. Maybe they had eating all the grass that was in Shechem. So they decide, hey, let's keep going. So they, they go on to, to Dothan. And it just so happens that when they were in Shechem, there was another man who was there, who just so happened to overhear them of where they were going, who just so happened to stay there until Joseph was coming back, until Joseph was coming from Hebron. And it just so happens that he was a good man who was willing to help Joseph to find his brothers. And I recognize that if God wanted to prevent this whole thing from happening, it would have been very easy. He could have easily saved Joseph from the impending tragedy. He could have had the brothers move on. Joseph doesn't find him. Joseph goes back, couldn't find him. The safety of Hebron, he returns into his loving father's arms. But that's not what happens. God carries him forward into the narrative. 
on to Dothan. And Dothan just so happened to be near a major trade route, which was an additional 14 miles from Shechem, taking Joseph further away from his father's protection. And the brothers were, in fact, in Dothan, and they see him coming. So on to verse 18. Where is this leading? They saw him in the distance. Perhaps it was a robe of many colors because they can see him in the distance. I don't know. Maybe the long sleeves were obvious too. Regardless, before Joseph had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So come, on, so come on now, let's kill him and throw him down into one of these pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Just see the sickening evil in the hearts of the brothers. There's obvious sarcasm here. Dream expert. Some translations say dreamer. They're saying, okay, this guy with the dreams, well, if we kill him, his dreams are clearly not from God. We'll see who has the final say. How ironic is it that, that Joseph takes this long journey, which, which was sure to be dangerous, not knowing what animals he would see, not knowing what would happen when he enters into enemy territory, and yet it's not the animals, it's not the enemies, it's his own brothers. Like a pack of wolves preying on a single sheep on a hillside, the brothers' jealousy and hatred has boiled over to the point of orchestrating a deadly blow to their little brother. And if there is hatred or jealousy in our hearts, it, we can't be okay with that. We have to kick it out. No thank you to hatred and jealousy because as we're seeing now, eventually, eventually it will come, it will come out. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that if you hate your brother, it's, it's like you've committed murder in your heart. And that's exactly, that's exactly what's happening here. Hatred has boiled over to the point of murder. And for those who have been walking through this journey of Genesis, you hear echoes of prior stories, of prior characters. Chapter 4, Cain plotting to kill Abel. Chapter 27, Esau plotting to kill Jacob. The sick carnivorous, wicked evil in the heart of man. And it's coming out. And they see Joseph coming, and they plan to take him out. There is one brother who had something to say. Reuben, the oldest. Verse 21 says, When Reuben heard this, that they're going to kill him, tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into the pit in the wilderness, but, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. This, this is the first hint of goodness that we've seen from the brothers. Again, Reuben is the oldest, and 
this is honestly the first good thing that we've seen from him. If, if you've been following along chapter 35, um, he committed a despicable act. He, he, he slept with one of his father's concubines, clearly trying to make a power statement. And it seems that he's had a change of heart. He wants to make amends with his father. He sees this precious son and he wants to save him for the sake of his relationship with his father and he wants to finally do right. It it seems, it seems that Reuben has turned around. And it, and it and it shows, it shows to us that no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, it's never too late to turn around. There may be consequences for your sins. Reuben, despite the, old, the oldest, was later told that he wouldn't receive the birthright because of his enormous mistake. But yet he turned around. Friends, Jesus came not to scold, but to preach repentance to turn around. He came to seek and to to save the lost. Jesus is not looking to scold us. He's looking for us to turn around that he might accept us into his open arms. He's ready. He's ready to receive you. No matter who you are and what you've done, it's not too late to turn around, to seek forgiveness and the beauty and glory of Christ. And it seems that Reuben is on that path. He's trying to save his brothers. But while they don't kill him, it does not go as Reuben had planned. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the long-sleeved robe that he had on, Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. It's probably one of those cisterns that had a a, a long entrance and then a deep open base that would have been very difficult to get out, impossible, on your own. And it says that, verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. The audacity to, to capture their brother and while he is within earshot they're sitting and eating a meal just numb numb to the sin sin in their hearts the sin of their actions they're eating a meal and then plans change verse 25 they look up and there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead their camels were carrying Aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. These were some of the best products in the land. Interestingly, these were products that Jacob would one day give as an offering to Egypt for where the story is headed. But these were precious, precious products. And and Judah comes up with a plan. Verse 26, he says to his brothers, what if we, what, what do we gain if we kill our brother and come up 
and cover up his blood. Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. Wow, how admirable of Judah. He's our brother. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery that we might actually gain something from him. It's a very clever argument that he uses to convince the brothers such that they might gain from their brother's tragedy. And sure enough, that's what they do. Verse 28, when Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. So Midianites, Ishmaelites, who are these folks? So Jacob's father, Isaac, his brother, was Ishmael. And so these are essentially like distant, distant uncles who, who are passing by. Midianites, likely a, a subset of the Ishmaelites, a particular ethnic group uh, within the Ishmaelites. They're coming by on their way to Egypt. And for 20 pieces of silver, they purchase Joseph. And it's understood that that was about the going cost of a slave. So not anything special, not a premium for a young brother, just the going rate, just to get rid of him, just to make something, make a little cash from their brother. And Reuben is shocked. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? Reuben's plan fails. Have you ever expected something to, to be in a certain location and then you go and it's, it's not there? You get this sick feeling in your stomach. I've had, a, I've had a bike stolen in Chicago, and it's not... I'm pretty sure I put it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm positive that I put it there. And it's gone. It's gone. I imagine on a much deeper, deeper level, that was the feeling that Reuben had. He was just there, and now he's gone. He's devastated. He, he tears his clothes as evidence of his remorse. And so here's the brothers. They're in Dothan, 60, 70 miles from home. Joseph, away he goes, off to Egypt with these Ishmaelites. And so the brothers return to their original plan of deception. Verse 31, they return. They take Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a male goat, dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the long-sleeved robe to their father and said, we found this. As if they're innocent. Look, we just found it. Examine it. Is, is this your son's robe or not? Just, just wondering. We're not, we're not sure. Do you, do you know? Is, is this Joseph's robe? 
His father recognized it. It is my son's rope. He said, a vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. They carry out the original plan, and Jacob takes the bait. Jacob, the deceiver, has become the deceived. Jacob, who once deceived his father by wearing goat skins, is now deceived himself by his sons using goat blood. You can't make this up. What is, where does Jacob go from here? His beloved son, his favorite son, tears his clothes. He puts sackcloth around his waist. He mourned for his son many days. A physical expression of uncontrollable mourning. And he refuses to be comforted. Verse 35, all his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. His father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. Meanwhile, so the narrative carries on. It's, it's not over. There's more of the story to be told. Yet, we see Jacob uncontrollable mourning. He says, I'm going to shield mourning. Sheol was the name of the place of the dead. And Jacob is essentially declaring, I will live the rest of my life a sad, sad man. He refuses to be comforted. And we can feel, feel for Jacob. If, if we would dare to even begin to imagine the pain that Jacob is experiencing, his teenage son has been killed. If we dwell on that too long, it surely will bring us to tears. How does the father carry on? And let's keep it real. This is a fun children's story, but this is not a good story. It's a painful story about human trafficking. A boy sold into slavery. And it's painful because this, this is a story of many, many years ago, but this is a story that happens still around the world today. What do we do with that? We can ask what Jacob probably was asking. God, why? Why? Now, now this story continues on. And, and if we get the whole story, we, we see that Genesis 50 verse 20, Brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good. God's, God's hands have been in this all in one day. One day, Joseph's dreams will be fulfilled and he will save his family as they bow down to him and he'll say, God had a plan. You planned it for evil. God planned it for good. But what about in our own life? God means it all for good. But how? How? Sometimes 
there's tragedies, heartbreaks in our lives, and we just can't put the pieces together. God, how? How can you make good out of this situation? It seems unfathomable. I cannot even consider, I cannot even imagine why this would happen, how good can come about. There's a story um, of a East, Middle Eastern folklore of a man who lost his horse that ran away. And the neighbor comes over and says, oh, your horse ran away, bad luck. And the guy says, good luck, bad luck, what do, what do I know about these things? Then the horse comes back with 20 more horses. The neighbor comes and says, oh, it's not bad luck that he ran away, it's good luck. You got 20 more horses. Then his boy, he was training one of the horses, and the horse kicked him and broke his leg. Ah, the neighbor said, bad luck that these horses came. Your son's leg is broken. Then a band of thugs, they come into town looking for able-bodied young men to take with them in their gang, and they see this boy, and they're about to take him, and they see he has a broken leg. They say, oh, we don't want him. Let's go on to the next town. And the neighbor says, oh, good luck that your son's leg was broken. And the man says, good luck, bad luck. What do I know about these things? And in just a short series of events, we don't know what lies ahead. And for all who know Jesus as Savior, Redeemer, and Lord, one day we'll see God face to face. And there will be reasons why events happened the way they did. His sovereignty, his perfect knowledge, his perfect power will at last come fully into clearness. Perhaps the things of this life are meant to show us the the heinousness of evil and see the majesty and love of God. It's okay to ask God why. Maybe he'll show you. I'm sure the disciples asked the same question when the perfect, sinless Son of God was tortured and killed right before their eyes. God, why? We thought that he was the one. We thought he was the Messiah. What good can possibly come from this? God used the most evil act in human history to free us from our sins to ultimately conquer evil, to be the fulfillment of the longings of Genesis, to conquer evil itself by rising from the dead. Without the crucifixion, there is no resurrection. Therefore, therefore, with that perspective, to see eternity in mind, may through Christ the heartbreak moments of this life, may they not define us, but may they refine us. May they draw us closer to him. Jesus can only be proven to be enough for us when, in fact, we're put in a situation when he is all we have. Genesis 37, like much of Genesis, is the story of the sinfulness of humanity and how God, in his timing, his sovereign purposes, will triumph over all. But when, when you're in the middle of the story, it's still hard. Driving through a storm, you can't see exactly what's ahead. So when the dark moments of life hit us, may through the tears, through faith, may we press on 
and draw all the more near to our Savior. And may we gently, lovingly, kindly bring others with us and to, to come alongside others who are going through the dark moments of life. Those in, in our family, those in this church, those in our community, those who are broken and hurting, may we come alongside them and point them, yes, to the story of Joseph, the unspeakable evil that can somehow, some way, be turned for good. And even more so, may we look to the cross of Christ where God turned unspeakable evil to adopt us into his family, that we might experience fullness of joy, fullness of life, in his presence forevermore. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we come before you and we praise you that you are God Almighty. You are the one who sees the beginning to the end. You are the one who has all power, all authority, all knowledge, and yet you love us. We can look back on our own lives and see how you were faithful, and we can look to the cross and to see how you are good. God, may the story of, of Genesis, may the story of the gospel give us hope, give us faith, to press on. When things don't go according to plan, when those that we love are in a deep valley, God, may your love, may your gospel reign supreme. God, may the tragedies of our life not define us, but may they refine us. You are worthy of all our praise in the highs and in the lows. And so here we are, Lord, before your throne, and we worship you. It's in your praise, your glory, and in your name.